Welcome to the Begin the Begin podcast. My name is Jeff Hillemeyer, and I'm on a mission to find out what makes people tick. Not just anyone, people who are making a profound impact on the world. I want to dig into their origin story and get to the root of why and how they do what they do. I hope you are as inspired coming out of these conversations as I am. Let's get into it. This is a very special episode as I talk with my good friend and one of my favorite Atlanta business leaders, Kenji Kuramoto, about his family's experience with the Japanese internment camps of the 1940s. His generosity and vulnerability in sharing this with me was so powerful, and I just know you'll appreciate the stories he shares. And hey, while I've got you, definitely consider subscribing on whatever platform you're listening on. I have a lot of great guests lined up that, trust me, you won't want to miss. Okay, let's get into it. Well, I'm joined here today with my good friend, Kenji, and we're going to talk about something I've never talked about on this podcast. But before we start, Kenji, can you tell everybody who you are and what you do? Yeah, thanks, Jeff, for having me on. Uh, So I'm Kenji Kuramoto, and I am the founder and CEO of Acuity. We help uh, a lot of early-stage, high-growth companies with their outsourced accounting. And I've been doing that for, golly, a long time now, getting close to 20 years, which is crazy. (laughs) Crazy. And then um, during the the day, I get to work with your incredible wife, Rochelle, and then you you get her back when when we're done. Um, But that's been one of the true joys of my career is having Rochelle join Dragon Army. So thank you for... For being a part of helping her make that decision, it's been it's been great. We've 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 loved it. We've had I know uh, people have asked about that, and it's been um, it's been great in the two years that things she's been working with Dragon Army, and before that collaborating with you on Forty Eight and Forty Eight. So uh, it's been an awesome awesome time and awesome process for her being part of the Dragon Army team. So yes, you're right. We are both incredibly fortunate that we get a chance to spend time with that amazing woman. So <laughs> no doubt. Well, so. You know, I want to start by thanking you for having this conversation. I, um, you know, I feel like I'm on a bit of a journey of trying to understand uh, other other cultures, other lives uh, for several different reasons. One, uh, because growing up as a uh, white male, um, I've had a certain sort of protective bubble, a privilege bubble, I like to call it, where I, I'm, I'm not exposed to different cultures that much, right? The world is sort of yeah. set up for people like me to succeed. Um, and then at the same time, I've learned that my education as a young person, uh, doesn't always uh, provide all of the facts. I actually read, um, I don't know if you've read this book lies. My teacher told me I've not read it, but I've heard of it. Yes. Yeah. And you know, you start to understand like, wow, we were, and are still being spoon fed a lot of, um, you know, polished off, realities so that, you know, maybe our, Absolutely. our children don't hear the truth because they can't handle it. But I think you, you and I both agree that they, they should hear the truth. And so I say all that to say, I picked up a book in the bookstore the other day. I actually, there's a used bookstore by us that I try to go to, but they have like a new section and they had a graphic novel by George Takei and it's called, they call us enemy. They called us enemy. And it's his story about his family um, in the 1940s, he was, uh, I think six or seven or eight or something. And his family was put into the internment camps and they spent, I think a couple of years there. And so anyways, I was telling another friend this and, and just, I've, and now I've been having my entire, entire family read this graphic novel. It's so moving. I, I think everyone should get it. I'll put, I'll put the link in the show notes, but 
well, I was talking to another friend about the book and he said, you know, I, I think he had maybe spoken to you about some of this or something. And he said, you should yeah. ask Kenji. So that, that's the premise. I sent you a text <laughs> and I'm like, Hey man, if you're open, I would love to have you on the podcast to talk about this, share your story, your family story. And you immediately said, yes. So that's why we're here. That's why we're here. And I, I really appreciate that outreach and that, and that mutual friend who made that connection point, because this is not for, for those who know me and many who don't, it's not something I've spoken about a lot. I've been on many podcasts talking about business and leadership and, and things that I'm very passionate about. Uh, but this is a space around my background um, and, and someone who's probably just looking, you know, at the begin the begin podcast notes, he's a guy named Kenji Kuramoto listed and said, you know, and it probably, it probably gives you some expectation of, of who of who that is, who I am speaking, right? I think we all come with those. And so um, it's not a place I've explored very much. And so I think when you reached out and said, hey, I want to, would you be open to talking about this, this or on this book that I've read, which I've also read, it's a fantastic book. For me, it was a great opportunity to talk about something I haven't had much of a chance to talk about and even kind of process and think about what it means to me. As I think is both of us leaders of organizations, we're trying to understand better about people coming from different backgrounds and different perspectives and what that means in our organizations and our, in our communities. And so it's, uh, I was thrilled that you'd, you'd asked me on here to kind of talk about it because um, if you do know me, you, you know, if you could see Jeff and I speaking right now, you, you and I probably look actually look pretty similar. You may have a hard time telling which one of us is Kenji Kuramoto actually by, by looking at the two of us. And I think that's part of a little bit of some of my interesting history with it is um, I'm half Japanese and I, in my, my dad is full Japanese and I favor my mom's side really more. I have two younger brothers, much more so. Um, I, I, re, I look honestly, very white, very kind of Caucasian. I get occasionally, Hey, you look a little bit, are you of Italian or Hawaiian descent? But otherwise it's a little tough to tell that I'm Japanese. I grew up in the Midwest and early in my life for a long time, I guess I, I honestly liked being treated just like a regular kid. I just, I just wanted to blend in. I just wanted to, and I, I think many people go through that. They just want to be treated as, Hey, you're the kid who lives next door to me or in my class at school or on my sports team without bringing, having to bring in some of the more complicated issues of race and background and ethnicity and I was very much that way. And I think as an immature person that way, of just wanting to um, just be kind of left alone. In fact, I used to get really embarrassed, Jeff, um, in during new school years, like every new school year when they'd have to go through the roll call and the teacher would get to my name and I'd be waiting until he got to the case. And they'd say, it kind of be going through regular, you know, more traditional names and they'd get to Kenji Kuramoto and they'd stumble and everybody kind of look at me and I would get really embarrassed. I would just hope that we could get off that topic as soon as possible and I'd get questions about my name. And so I was, um, I, I wanted to kind of avoid and push down that kind of background because I just wanted it as a young person, I just wanted to fit in. Why can't I just fit in? I don't want to have to talk about my background. And it became later in life to where um, as I matured, and probably even after college, when I got in some work situations, I actually got to know some some native Japanese who were fascinated by my background. They kind of looked at me as well and said, "Wait, you're Kenji Kuramoto, a very, very traditional last name." And 
I kind of used to brush it off, say, well, yeah, but I grew up in the middle of Illinois, the cornfields. I don't speak any Japanese. I don't look at it. I kind of downplay it. And they really kind of dug in with me more. I said, no, I want to hear more about like, how did your family come to the United States? How did that all happen? And I think that's where for me, it began to emerge that my story was unique. It was interesting. Uh, it played a role in shaping who I am, who our family is. And so um, there are many things about the book. I really recommend people taking a look at George Takei's book that resonated with me as I saw even him as a young person in the internment camps, kind of having memories of fondness, memories of, you know, not understanding entirely the situation. I, I can't ever say that me growing up in the Midwest was anything like that, but I, I could relate to that a bit of where, hey, you're just trying to have friends and play games and life when you're a young person. You're not trying to, you're not, you don't, can't quite comprehend some of the uh, the deeper sides of this. So, um, so yeah, that's when I began exploring really more of my family history. Mm-hmm. And, and when I started learning a bit more about that, there was a very deep, rich, you know, Asian American uh, history for the Kuramoto family coming into the States, which did include um, some of my family members being in internment camps. And so it's, um, it's, it's, uh, it's my grandfather, I guess I'll say Jeff is he was the, the re- one of the reasons why I probably wasn't as aware of it as a kid is if you look at that order, executive order 9066, which is a famous order that basically during World War II said that um, basically Japanese or anyone with Japanese heritage um, could not live in essentially the West Coast. It was considered a sensitive military area just after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And you you had two choices, essentially. You either leave the coast or you go into an internment camp. That was actually part of 9066. Um, and most of us today would probably say, well, well, just relocate out of California or, or wherever you might be or Arizona or Washington. And that was really very impractical to do for most people. I mean, it was just very difficult to do that. Many people owned a business and, and Japanese-owned businesses. My grandfather was a medical student at the time at um, USC. He was able to get a transfer um, to Iowa State University <laughs> out in the middle of the Midwest. I think there was a kind family who sponsored him. This was, again, during World War II. And that's how our family ended up. We have this, if you were to look at the Kermoto family tree today, Jeff, it's uh, from the Japanese side. Everybody is still out in the California area, except this one little weird branch, which is my branch of my grandfather was able to avoid internment camps. His sisters were not. Um, and he was able to finish his education in the Midwest and put down roots there. And that's how we became kind of this interesting Midwestern version um, of the Kuramoto family. And But yes, we had um, his sisters while he was finishing up medical schools, his sisters were in internment camps, I believe, in, um, in I think, Poston and Manzanar were two of the camps, two of the 10 camps that people relocated to, spent, spent time there, and then had other family members in other camps, too. So it's, a, it's an interesting kind of, I, I think, a weaving of Japanese and American histories um, that, again, plenty of other things happened during that time, even though my grandfather was not in internment camps and the sisters were, um, a lot of things he had to deal with, certainly. As a, as a young person during World War II, for sure. Right. I mean, there was a massive anti-Japanese sentiment in the country during that period, right? Um, there was. was. He, did he ever, did you did you get to know him? I mean, I don't know if he's still around or if you got to know him. I did. did. Okay. Did he yeah. talk about 
either of those things, what it was like growing up at that time, being Japanese and or his sister's experiences in the camp? We did. My grandfather passed away right before I went to college. My grand, and his name is, was Isamu Kuromoto, but he went by Sam, actually Dr. Sam when he became a doctor. That's where my oldest son is named after his great grandfather. Um, and his wife, my grandmother was Aiko and she passed away when I was just an infant. So I never knew her, but in talking to my grandfather, he ended up, um, this is, I guess the way it worked back then is when you had all these town doctors in rural Iowa and when you're either your town doctor either passed away or retired, you had to go get the new one. And usually you'd go down to the local university, Iowa State is where my grandfather was, and you'd go find the new town doctor. And my grandfather, when he graduated um, this town, he always just say that he, he ended up living the rest of his life in Webster City, Iowa, um, a very kind of rural, central Iowa town. And he told me, he said, he said, Kenji, this town was desperate for a doctor, so desperate that they hired the Japanese guy out of, out of medical school, right? They really needed someone there. But he went and he said, um, Webster City, which again is a place that he grew to love and adore when he first moved there on the sign, Jeff, like coming in, entering the town, it had something to the effect that said, welcome to Webster City, where we have the blackest soil and the whitest people. Like it was a, you know, it was just kind of written in a way of where, you know, these oh. Midwestern folks were proud of their farming heritage, these deep black soil, but also this kind of very white culture. And so he faced quite a bit of opposition and said, in fact, there were people who would get really sick. Like and he said, it took them a while to actually want to come and see him because they did not trust, did not want to be seen by a doctor of Japanese descent. He was born and raised in Los Angeles. Um, so he's considered a second generation American. Um, but he was born and raised there, and he said again for many, many years faced a lot of a lot of racism and a lot of challenge of just being someone who, again, is an integral part of this community who's really there providing right. health and wellness for everyone. And it it took it definitely took a lot of time, and so he faced quite a bit of that in his early years. Um, and his sisters, um, he had again uh, sisters who were in the internment camps who came out and most of them kind of lost everything while you were in the camps, any form of business or house you had basically just kind of went away. There was no way to maintain that while you were in the camps. So there's a lot of help back with them once they became, came out of the camps um, that he had to go and provide and help with that. Uh, I believe there were also some cousins and folks who served on the U S side uh, doing some code breaking and things there too. So it's just a very complicated time when you look at your family uh, as American citizens and say, well, one's coming out of medical school facing issues in his small little rural town in the Midwest. Others are in internment camps and others are actually serving on the U.S. side, you know, and yet still being very much treated like second-class citizens. Um, my grandfather was a little bit interesting with that, though, too. I, it's, and he may have been this way more in his later life, Jeff, when I talked to him about how he didn't... I never saw him ever really hold a grudge, though. He never did. He was very um, adamant about that he was an American first. Uh, now, granted, he didn't have to go through the camps like his sisters did. And so that could have definitely changed his perspective. Um, but that he was a very, um, very staunch defender of the U.S. And, and the United States during World War II. In fact, 
His family, the Kuramotos, originally came over from Hiroshima. And his father, uh, so my, this is my great-grandfather, Jeff, um, he went back just before the war to Japan to see about an inheritance. He was in Hiroshima. I guess, I don't know if he was technically an American citizen, but he was our first generation coming over. And he actually was in Hiroshima at the time of the bombing and passed away. So I lost my great-grandfather, was, was killed in Hiroshima, um, yet had also kind of been a bit of a, not a quite a U.S. citizen, but had brought his family over. And so my grandfather spoke about that. Um, I remember he was interviewed later in life in the big state paper, the Des Moines Register, when my grandfather finally retired. And he was very um, adamant saying, it was terrible that I lost my father, but the bombing of Hiroshima saved many, many American boys' lives. And so he was kind of an interesting, very kind of strong patriot in that way. And I always wonder if I could speak to him now, um, is that a result of trying to assimilate into a culture? Um, has he has he just always had those firm beliefs? It's a place I'd love to explore more. Has he still been around? Yeah. But it was just a very interesting time um, there thinking about, again, this very uh, this family of folks who were serving in the military in internment camps, trying to live a life as a as a rural physician, and also with all their, their father being killed in the bombing in Hiroshima. So it's um, it's a place that's for me been fascinating to explore. And again, when I mentioned these colleagues of mine who were Japanese in Tokyo were the ones who kind of pulled this story out because I was thinking, well, I used to think of it as I don't really know the language very well. I haven't been over there very often. I don't know much about it. And then through explore, exploration of them asking questions, realized they were like, that is fascinating. What a fascinating story that is. So, so yeah, that's kind of um, I'd say high level, Jeff, about kind of how. Um, you know, at least it kind of went with, with my family. We're still very close with our our family out in California today. Um, I have not been back. I have not visited one of the internment camps, but sure historic sites that I really, really would like to. I think Heart Mountain and Poston both have yes. some there. I'd like to um, really go back and see those. And then I will say one thing that's kind of cool is my, my um, I guess they're my great aunts, my two aunts who were in the internment camps. Um, in the eighties, there was a restitution made, uh, and I think it was by Reagan, uh, restitution made and to folks who'd been put in internment camps, to Japanese who had been. So my, my great aunts were eligible to receive that. And what they did was, um, they pulled that money together and they've been throwing a continual, uh, family reunion kind of every year. And they do, actually, they go out and do it in Las Vegas. They're a really fun-loving kind of crew, and they have a big family reunion. They use that every year. They've been doing it since the 80s, and they have a big kind of celebration of the whole family out there. But they, they've, they've funded it for all the rest of the family through um, some of the, the restitution money that came from them having to be in the camp. So. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I remember that scene in the book, actually, when uh, when that happens with Reagan. Yeah. Did, did you... Did, did do your aunts, your great aunts, did they speak much about their time there? Did they look back at it sort of similarly to George Takei and how he looked back at that? I think so, yes. One one particular um, great aunt of mine um, became, I, I'd say, a fairly strong activist and uh, was an artist as well, too. And she um, used to do a lot of art depicting that time, kind of a conflict of the kind of, and, and when she was in the camps. Um, she even, I think at one point had a, one of her pieces in the Smithsonian. We were really proud of her back in the day, 
but it was a lot of it was very much influenced by um, what they saw, what they experienced, um, not just in the internment camps, but even afterwards trying to you know reacclimate back into the culture. Um, always with a very positive way about her. But yes, they um, she I think they were much because of their because of what they experienced were a bit more vocal than my my grandfather was, I believe. And again, that could have been they they went back into Japanese communities in the Los Angeles and San Francisco areas. And so I think there was more of an opportunity within those communities to really voice some of those stories of things that happened. My my grandfather also was a little bit isolated from it, right? They were dealing with some of their own issues of just trying to how to how to integrate into a community, but at least with many, many more freedoms than my great aunts had. And so, yeah, they got very involved out there. Um, and it's really fun going back into those, in to see the family out there in, in Los Angeles, just because they're still very uh, rich in Japanese culture and traditions. Um, you can, you can see it certainly in pictures when there's pictures, family pictures taken that it's, um, most of them married other, other Japanese and they just have a, a stronger awareness than I have had, but we, my brothers and I, my parents loved going back because you could kind of see in these pictures, you know, the little Midwestern side, me and my brothers over there, um, who are of mixed, more mixed race. And most of the rest of our family have all kind of married other Japanese. And it's fun going back and really getting to experience a lot of that rich history. So I think those communities allowed them to be a little more forthright in some activism and in speaking up about the injustices. And whether that was in terms of uh, political activism, which I believe there was a uh, one of our family members who was more politically oriented, or my great aunt who used expressions of the art instead of her artwork to kind of speak out about it. But but yeah, that's how that's how they, they express some of their experiences. Did you, when you were growing up and you were in school, do you did did your coursework talk about this? Never, right? Never, never spoke about it. I mean, right. never saw it. Um, and so, no, I, I never did. I assume when you were, you were mentioning earlier it was something. Yeah. Did you ever see it either? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I've talked on this podcast before about uh, how. I was taught, and I'd be curious if you were taught this as well, that, you know, I was taught very clearly that the Civil War was fought for states' rights and that it was not slavery. I mean, like, it, I, it's one of those moments in school where yeah. I remember so clearly thinking, oh, that's the smart answer. Okay, I'm a smart, I'm, I'm smart now because I'm not going to be fooled to think it was slavery. I mean, that was <laughs> right. taught to me, right? Right, um, right. I don't, I don't remember, I don't have the best memory, but I don't remember hearing about this in school. If, if anywhere, it may have been a very quick footnote, right. a sentence, right. Right. sentence or two, um, yeah. very much so. And, and we're I think that's about been hundred yeah. thousand people, right? Over a hundred, about one hundred twenty thousand people. Um, and again, when you go back and look at um, where there there were essentially none or almost no um, acts that came out of that they could point back to and say, well, this is this is the reason or justification. And I think anyone who's reasonable could go back and look at that. And that was what happened in Pearl Harbor was awful. It was horrible. And it played upon the fears um, that we all have and sometimes not our best decisions and acting out of fear um, and, and making a snap decision to say, well, I mean, literally within minutes of the proclamation of war, you know, Executive Order 9066 was, was issued right away without much thought of just, we, we just, 
We don't understand this community. It could be a risk. We're just going to go ahead and preventively, even though nothing, we can't point to anything that any of the Japanese Americans have done, we're going to go ahead and put them securely away. We're going to get them out of this area and put them in camp. So yeah, 120,000 people, it was a huge number. And I think we've certainly seen more of that. It may have been a small footnote back then, but it certainly wasn't something talked about. And I think that um, one of my, my, my dad's sister, my aunt, Alice, who is really good. She's kind of our family historian. And so we've learned a lot through her. Um, and, and one thing I think she's talked about with us about is that it's a little bit has been the way of the Japanese culture of being um, maybe passive is the wrong word but not very demonstrative um there i think if people travel to japan in many regards um you can see the people that are incredibly polite uh, are, are deferent to, to others and there are some thoughts about you know um where was our we looked kind of in into ourselves and hey were we not forthright enough after this happened was there not opportunity uh there's probably not opportunity to speak out but also did some of that also get a little bit masked over because uh, the Japanese people were busy rebuilding their lives. They didn't go out and make strong stance or big statements about it. Um, and, and is that something that was cultural back then as well, too, where the platform wasn't available to them? There was not much advocacy for it. And historically, they've been a, a people who have been relatively passive in many ways. Of um, One of the things that uh, my, my grandfather did remember was that that what happened on when they were issuing those executive orders were many uh, there were many many boys things like boy scouts were very popular back then and in fact um many many Japanese were involved in boy scouts they would all go put their uniforms on actually many of them wore their boy scout uniforms to the camps in a way to try to show allegiance and were part of this and so it was just a very complicated time to where uh it was great to see that over the past few decades, there's been some recognition and some change into the history. And I, I do think Takei's book, you'd mentioned it, I'd seen it. And so I was like, I need it, you know, I'd, I'd flipped through it before and I got it and read it. And I was really struck by it, really struck by how well told it is. And I think it gives multiple perspectives about how um, people fought with, how do you speak up? Right. And it's okay. People have different ways of speaking up very, uh, you can, you can go out there and, be very vocal if you need to there were there were people who did that japanese who did that there were others who focused more on how do we go improve the community there were others who thought more long term about how do we work with politicians and so it was a it was a great it was a great way i think to kind of look at it and to me it was really meaningful because i could see many aspects of my own family's history within that book as well you know i was thinking about when I read that book and, and really, and again, I, I read this book a month ago and it's the first time I really started to understand what happened. And, uh, I started to think about nine 11 and, and I wonder when nine 11 happened, which, you know, I guess is the, then became the largest attack on, you know, American soil, um, you know, by a group of people, you know, according at that moment, um, to everyone did, did was there any part of you or or maybe even the mm. Japanese community that was like uh, either you know here we go again or is this going to happen again? I, I don't know that we had exactly the mm. same population, but I just I wonder like because one of the things that is dangerous about hiding these truths is that you're then bound to repeat them, 
And it's one of the things that I learned, actually, I got to hear Brian Stevenson, who wrote Just Mercy, give a talk. And he was talking about how in Germany, um, they they try to take tourists to see uh, some of the Nazi, you know, um, certainly concentration camps yeah, and things because yeah. they, they want Dark the history to stuff, just yeah. stay there and they talk about it, right? Mm-hmm. And we try to bury everything here. Um, and so I just wonder, like, or did it not even occur to you? Was it just so different? And I, I just wonder about that. No, I, to be honest, Jeff, I don't think it occurred to me. One, one reason was, uh, we spoke about it earlier, my wonderful wife, she was actually in the air during, um, on that oh. day. So Rochelle was flying. So my initial concern was, sure. um, her and she landed, I think just between when the two towers were hit. And so I think that was probably sucking up a lot of my attention. Um, I think, but no, I, I, I think that's part of it. Even I will say, even someone of Japanese descent like myself, and I think that's a personal thing that I wrestle with. And I wonder how many other people do of some of these different ethnic backgrounds. Of There's just such a desire to, to assimilate, to be part of the culture. But sometimes I think that each of us, it's been a place where I want to improve and that's why this is a great opportunity for me is to explore that of thinking of thinking more clearly about this is something that happened to my family was affected by it. Yet how often do I think about it as as a way to not repeat history, as a place to learn from? And I don't think um, I think about it very much. And some of that I think I can't just blame on, well, Jeff, you and I had crappy history textbooks back in the day. We, we, we did that we you know, whitewash some things for sure. But also even I had opportunity to, to even um, learn more about my family heritage and culture and it probably didn't do so back then because i was trying to do regular teenage things or just to try to you know look or be the part of what my other friends were and i'm i'm i'm, I'm proud of my kids these days because we we're just talking one of mine went off to college and he specifically chose washington dc because he is very interested in all things happening globally and he has a strong interest much stronger than i did in our family history and so i i think that you know i came from probably a a bit of a a time and i just didn't express much enough of an interest because i was too busy trying to fit in and Mm -hmm. make the swim team and get along with others that i want to explore that and i'm really grateful and thankful that i see generations now who are celebrating and leaning in to different backgrounds who are curious about it um and and it's fun to see that in your own kids because i think he was we were really bummed that was going to be our big graduate high school graduation was a, a trip we were all going to go do to japan we want to do that together here maybe we'll be a chance to repeat that to really go back and embrace our culture that was something he was really spearheading and driving wanting to go do and so i'm thankful for that because i think those are the opportunities that help us not repeat history over again um and so i'm proud to see that even though i didn't have probably all the maturity to explore my history as much. He's doing it at a younger age. And I think it'll be more impactful for him and for others of his age too. So that's a great start, I think. Yeah, no, I love that. Well, I, I just so appreciate you having this chat with me about this topic and being willing to share your story. It, it definitely helps me learn. And honestly, even how you started this off where you talked about being in school and trying so hard to fit in. And, and again, that's something that you know, other than sort of normal angst about trying to fit in, like I didn't worry about, you know, what I looked like or what my last name was or, you know, and that's, that's something like, 
again, you were dealing with that and that's an extra stressor. It's an extra thing that, you know, maybe it drops confidence or, and I just think the more that, you know, I think probably a, a majority of my audience is white um, just because <laughs> that's sort of how the world works. And I hope that they heard that because the more I, you know, I read um, Mediocre by Ijeoma Aluo, mind blowing for me. And and again, she talked about something similar. She talked, you know, she talked about her hair growing. She's a, a black female, her hair and trying to change it, all these things that just to me, I had never really even thought about. So I, I, again, I just appreciate you sharing your story. And, um, you know, I hope, I hope that people listened and maybe check out George's book because this is a story that needs to be told. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great book. And I, and I appreciate that, Jeff. Yeah. I think that's, I hope others out there think through that. And I think there's even ways within um, the communities we're in, whether it's in businesses to be considering what other people are going through who have those different backgrounds, whether, and whether that may be some biases that we all have, even when we're doing things like hiring or there's, or you're, you're a student in school. I think there's great ways to, uh, to help people through that because it does, it does impact folks for sure. It definitely, it definitely does. So I appreciate that opportunity and platform to kind of talk about it just for me to explore that. So uh, it's been awesome. Appreciate you, man. I hope to see you soon. Likewise. Wow, you made it to the end of the podcast. I didn't think people did that anymore. Well, since I still have you, I'd love for you to do two things. First, subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. That way you'll be alerted as soon as I post my next one. And second, I'd love for you to subscribe to my email newsletter. I send out an email every week or two, and it's really where I share my more personal thoughts and ideas. Plus, I give stuff away sometimes. You can find the sign up at my blog, jeffhillemeyer.com. And I really do appreciate you listening.